to Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, and um, one, one, bit, one bit of praise. Can I give one bit of praise today? Um, I just was talking with Kevin Martin before the service, and he wanted to let me know that it was last night. Was it last night or a couple nights ago? Thursday, Thursday night um, that uh, Kevin was putting Judah to bed, and they had a long conversation. And those of you who have small kids, you've had these conversations with them at bedtime. It's like, where did you get so profound <laughs> with these questions? You know, And uh, they had a long conversation about life, living in this world, death, dying. And, um, and Kevin was just sharing the gospel with Judah, and Judah um, confessed his faith in, uh, in Christ. And he repented of his sins, and he's, he's uh, become a Christian. And so much rejoicing happening there. Judah's a little shy, though. So, um, what's that? Lots of prayers. Lots of prayers for family, obviously, praying for, you know, the salvation of our children and just what a, what a, Wonderful bit of news. I didn't ask you its permission beforehand, um, but I just thought it would be great to, sh- to share that. And much rejoicing in the uh, Martin household and in the Pontius household and in the Redeemer household. So, uh, so, gr- so glad um, to hear that news today. Um, today, our scripture reading is going to be Mark chapter 1. And um, uh, since there are no kids this morning, we got kids in here and uh, glad to have you all in here this morning. For the teaching, um, and uh, we are in a series in Mark's Gospel. We're looking and asking this question this summer: uh, Who is Jesus? And we're looking at the life of Jesus uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And so, if you're uh, not too familiar with your Bibles, the New Testament, old, the Bible is broken up into half: an Old Testament and a New Testament. And the New Testament begins with four books that tell about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the basic same story, but they just tell it from a couple of different perspectives. And Mark, uh, I believe, is one of the earliest of these accounts. And so we're beginning, um, we get the introduction here of Mark's gospel in chapter 1. So our scripture reading will be the same as it was last week. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. So if you'll follow along, I'll read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judah and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. God, we do want to thank you for your word. And we want to thank you for the spirit that John told that crowd that Jesus would baptize his believers with. And so, God, we thank you for the indwelling spirit that you've given us that brings conviction of sins, that uh, works out in us and applies the salvation that Jesus has accomplished. And God, we thank you that this scripture um, was... uh, that the Holy Spirit had uh, the role in uh, inspiring the words of Scripture and that he also can illuminate our minds and help us to understand. So, God, we thank you that you've given us the Spirit so that we can not only read your word, we could hear it and we could see it with, um, with fresh ears and fresh eyes. And so, God, we ask that you uh, do that for us today as we hear your word and that we hear what you would have to say through it. And this we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said amen and amen. Recap, last week we we, we didn't get past the first verse. Now I know many of you are like, how are we going to get through Mark's gospel in the whole summer if you go one verse at a time? Um, Well, we'll see. We'll see how far we get. We'll see how far we get. Um, But we've looked at the name, the meaning of the word. uh, We looked at how Jesus is identified in verse one, that he's identified by his name, Jesus. He's identified as the Christ or Messiah um, and that he is the son of God. Mark then now jumps into uh, uh, some more understanding of who Jesus is. And he does so in a very interesting way. And so I want to give a couple of points here uh, to kind of explain the text and then to get to uh, one other aspect of Jesus's identity here. And so uh, there's five little points, uh, excuse me, four points that we're going to get today, uh, get to today. And so here's the, the first point. Jesus, this coming of this person, Jesus, is actually part of God's plan all along. Notice how Mark gives that introductory sentence in verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then he says in verses two and three, by the way, uh, this is not uh, not something that we didn't really know about this coming of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God is actually talked about in the Old Testament. And he does so by giving us two Old Testament verses in verses two and in three. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, 
And then it says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, Mark mentions just Isaiah, but as I said, these are actually, uh, this is actually a composite quote. He's actually pulling from two different places in the Old Testament. The first one is in Malachi chapter 3. And let me read that for you. And you can see he's just pulling a part of Malachi chapter 3, which is interesting because Malachi is the, the last of the prophets of the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And it begins with this. He says this in chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, so this is the words of the Lord to Malachi. And the Lord is saying to Malachi to say to the people, I'm going to actually have a forerunner and a messenger who's going to come ahead of me. And it continues, and he says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So that's the first part of this quote, and it's actually from Malachi. The second part of the quote comes from Isaiah, which is why he gives it the name. Uh, Isaiah is a much larger book than Malachi. Isaiah is kind of the, uh, in, in many ways, he's kind of the symbolic of the, the uh, later Old Testament prophets. And so that's why I think he mentions just, Mal, uh, just Isaiah, Isaiah and doesn't mention Malachi. And so this is what he says about, uh, from Malachi. This is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Let me read to you the the passage from Isaiah 40 itself, verses 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And then this in verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed... And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So he's actually, Mark has pulled these two verses together, speaking of the coming of the Lord, and that before the Lord comes, he's actually going to send a messenger and a forerunner ahead of him. This is where Mark begins his gospel. And then he introduces us to who that forerunner is but we get to that in a moment but i want us to just kind of stop and think about this this for a moment here that there are old there's an old testament root there's a plan of jesus's coming that's spoken of throughout the old testament and then mark is just pointing out just from a couple of verses that even this this person this forerunner that's talked about uh this guy, John, that we're going to read about in verse 4, that all of this is part of God's plan. Everything about the life of Christ was foretold beforehand in the Old Testament. Everything. His birth was talked about before in the Old Testament. The nature of who he is, his life, his death was spoken of in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the, the suffering servant. His resurrection was talked about in the Old Testament. Psalm 16, I, I believe, 
where it says, I will not let my my anointed servant will not see decay. And even the forerunner who comes before Jesus is talked about in the Old Testament. All of these prophesied long before Jesus' coming. That every step of the redemption, the plan of redemption that God had to save his people was actually uh, spoken of in the Old Testament. I like these words from from J.C. Ryle. I think it summarizes it well. He says, we should always read the Old Testament with a desire to find something in it about Jesus Christ. We, sh- we should always desire to read the Old Testament with, and have a desire to, to read it and see something about Jesus Christ in it. And Jesus even says uh, something along these lines to the religious leaders. He's, he's debating back and forth with the religious leaders of his day. And he says these words, Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 5. You search the scriptures... Because you think, you religious leaders, you think that by uh, them you have eternal life. But they testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Since all of the scriptures testify about Jesus. They bear witness about him. And so we see that evident here in these first, the use of these first two quotes. So Jesus' coming is a part of God's plan, and even the coming of the forerunner is a part of God's plan. And that forerunner is John the Baptist. So this is the second thing we notice about this passage. Who is this guy, John the the Baptist? Well, he's actually the cousin of Jesus. If you remember in Luke's gospel, Luke tells the story about um, the announcement that Mary, Jesus' birth mother, Uh, is going to be with child and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth and Elizabeth is with child and she says oh this baby in me is rejoicing that the mother of my Lord is come like she knows some she knows about this baby that's in Mary's womb and she has a baby in her womb at that time and that baby is John the Baptist now we don't have any record of John and Jesus knowing each other I mean, we don't see any encounters of it, but we could assume that if they were relatives and they were getting together and meeting uh, at the annual religious festivals of Israel, we could just assume that John and Jesus certainly knew about each other and knew who they who one another were. So he is um, he is the cousin of Jesus. He's actually a, a prophet too. notice what it says in verse six. Now, John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. At least part of that, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophet Elijah, that's one of the descriptions of Elijah in the Old Testament. Second Kings chapter one, verse eight, it says that Elijah, he wore a garment of hair uh, with a belt of leather about his waist. And they identified this. This is Elijah. The Tishbite. And so Mark pointing out how John is dressed, he's saying that he's boy, he sure does resemble one of the main uh, former prophets or the early prophets in Israel history, Elijah. 
Verse 6, he says he wore a, ca- a clothed with camel hair, a leather belt around his waist. And then a couple of interesting uh, tidbits. He ate locusts with wild honey. I meant to grab this picture from one of my Israel trips. We're out in the region, the, the region not very far away from where John's ministry was. And we're hiking through the, the region. And all of a sudden we hear... <laughs> And uh, our tour guide sees it, takes his hat off, runs over and throws it over the top of it. We kind of run around to see what it was. And he goes, this is a locust. I want to show you. And he reaches on there and he pulls it out. And it was this long. I mean, like a bird. It's like almost like a bird instead of a locust. Because I was thinking like around here, like, uh, like a cricket. How could you eat crickets? Like these, it's a meal. And so, so, uh, so John, that's what he ate out in the wilderness. He's eating these locusts and wild uh, honey. But all of that is to convey, he's, this is really, he's, a, he's an Old Testament prophet through and through. So he's Jesus's cousin. He's an Old Testament prophet uh, through and through. And in a way, he's the last Old Testament prophet in a way. The people of Israel hadn't heard a word from the Lord since Malachi, 400 years earlier. And now John is coming as the forerunner to the Messiah. And in a way, even though he appears in the New Testament, he's, he's uh, kind of like the last Old Testament prophet. And so this is, this is John who we are introduced, here, uh, introduced to here. Now, uh, what is John doing? Well, we have John's baptism and his message. John's baptism and his message. Verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judah and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Skip to verse seven. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's ministry here as the forerunner of the Messiah, the forerunner of this long promised um, anointed servant of the Lord. He comes and. He makes a call, an appeal, as it says in verse 3, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And notice in verse 5, the people are responding to this call by confessing their sins. This really is the first step of coming into a relationship with Jesus. It's It's really the one true prerequisite to faith, if you could say that, in Christ is to admit your need for him. And that's what John was calling to all of the people of Israel and Judah and all of the surrounding areas. So it's a, a rep- repentance and confession of the sin part, but there's a little, bit, a, a little bit more attached to this as well. It's also connected to the arrival of the kingdom of God. Matthew includes a detail in here. And if you turn to Matthew chapter three, Matthew has an account of this uh, that gives a little bit more detail, a little bit more insight. Matthew chapter three, verse two says this. uh, Giving you a quote of what John was preaching. 
In, the, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And then it's quoting him as saying, repent, right? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or the kingdom of heaven is another way of saying the kingdom of God. And then it also gives a quote from the Isaiah passage. So Mark doesn't include this mention of, of the kingdom. I think it's kind of can be derived a little bit by what we saw last week on the nature of who Jesus was. Jesus, meaning Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. That's the anointed servant. And he is the son of God, which was a term that was used from Psalm 2 of the anointed king that God was, that the Lord was prom promising to send. So there's a little bit embedded of this idea that the kingdom has come with Jesus as well. And so it's, uh, you need to see both of those things going hand in hand here. Is that he's saying the kingdom is now near, therefore you need to repent. The kingdom of God is here. God's anointed king is coming. I'm the forerunner. And therefore, you need to be ready. He's saying, trust me, you want to be on the right side of this. And so what you want, so what he's essentially calling to do is you're repenting of your sins so that you could submit yourself to God and his rule. So that's what uh, is kind of going on here with with John's ministry, that's his message, and that's his, uh, that's his, uh, what's behind in his baptism, this call to, to be baptized. Now, uh, baptism, in this sense, kind of changes and expands throughout Jesus's ministry. At the end of Jesus's ministry, after his death on the cross, after his resurrection from the grave, and his commissioning of the disciples to go out and make more disciples, he says, go, make disciples baptizing them so this thing that you saw that john was doing jesus kind of expands and redefines and says this is now become the marker of entrance into this jesus community and that's what we believe it's baptism is ordained by the lord jesus himself it's entrance into this new covenant community it's both god's pledge to us and it is also uh, our public vows of submission to him as king and as Lord. And so, uh, so we continue to practice this baptism. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. This Christian baptism is a baptism of repentance. John's baptism was a baptism in anticipation of the coming king christian baptism is a baptism of the recognition that jesus is king over my life and so that is john's message is repentance and as we see from matthew's gospel it's repentance because the kingdom is is here now that raises an interesting question though if this baptism is a baptism of repentance. Then why was Jesus baptized? Because that's what we see here next in the fourth scene. What, what does Jesus' baptism mean? 
Jesus, the rest of the New Testament tells us in multiple places that Jesus never sinned. He didn't need to repent of any sin because he didn't commit any. Then why is Jesus getting baptized here? Because that's what we see here in verses 9 and beyond. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And again, I think it's helpful here for us to look to get to, to answer that question. Well, wait, why is Jesus getting baptized here? It might be helpful for us to go again back to Matthew and see if Matthew could provide some detail for us to give us some help. Matthew chapter 3. Hopefully you still have your finger there. And beginning in verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So like John knows, John knows who Jesus is. And it's really interesting here is that he actually prevents, he wants to prevent Jesus from getting baptized because he knows he doesn't need this. Now, John's not, Jesus is not the only one John prevents. Uh, the religious leaders who come down to watch Jesus, John's baptism, he, he actually kind of critiques them and says to you brood of vipers, you know, that's a great way to, to have a... a a wonderful ministry to call people brood of vipers. That's, the, that's I guess, what a prophet does, right? You, you brood of vipers, it, it kind of, in a way, is preventing them be, from getting baptized uh, for a different reason. He, he's, he's turning to Jesus says, no, uh, I, I, if anyone needs to be baptized here, it's me, not you. But look at what Jesus says in verse 15. But Jesus answered him and said, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. That means that, that John then consented. So here's another aspect of the identity of Jesus here. And that is his role as the servant of the Lord. Okay. Yes, Jesus is the Savior. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. Yes, Jesus is the son of God, but uh, he is also the servant of the Lord. And as servant, he submits himself fully to God's will. Remember what I, I had said about this uh, being a baptism of repentance because the kingdom is is near Jesus is, and therefore this is a call, you repent of your sins because it's a call to submit to the coming king. Jesus here is submitting to the will of God the Father. D.A. Carson says it this way, the servant's first mark is obeying God. And in this, he fulfills all righteousness. Since he, that is the servant of God, that Christ, suffers and dies to accomplish redemption in obedience to the will of God. And by his baptism, Jesus is 
uh, affirms his determination to obey that will and to do his assigned work. That's D.A. Carson. Um, I read recently here uh, another uh, another scholar of the gospel says this, quote, Jesus is fulfilling his role as the obedient son of God by practicing the required righteousness of submitting to God's will to repent. So this is what Jesus is doing here. He's not he's not uh, getting baptized because he needs to repent of sin. He's getting baptized because now this is part of the fulfillment of what it means to fully submit yourself to the will of God. And that's why he says to John, this is why we need to do this now. Because now this is the mark. This is the beginning of, of this submission to God's will. So that answers the question, well, why did Jesus need to get baptized? But I want us to look a little bit further, a little bit more of what Jesus' baptism means for us. Another thing we need to know about Jesus' baptism uh, is kind of where it happens. I think I got a picture here. So uh, here is a map of Israel. So there's the Mediterranean Sea here on the western side. There's the coast. And Jesus' entire life, earthly ministry, never escapes this map. This strip of land that's um, maybe 60, 60 miles wide total on the map. Maybe 200 miles or so top to bottom. That's Jesus' entire life. In that little piece of real estate right there. And over here in the north, you have the, the region of Galilee, and then there's the Sea of Galilee. And then here's this Jordan River that runs down from the Sea of Galilee in the north all the way down to the Dead Sea in the south. And now this is the location of, of John's ministry here. So here you can see Jerusalem, the capital city there where the temple is. Jesus grew up in this little town right here in Nazareth. And then there is the uh, place where a lot of the incidents and scenes of Mark's gospel will take place. Is right here around the Sea of Galilee. As a matter of fact, the background picture slide is a picture of the Sea of Galilee uh, for the, the uh, series. So most of uh, the events take place here and also in Jerusalem. Uh, but the events that are taking place right now is right here where the Jordan River comes into the Dead Sea. Okay, so you guys all see that? Okay. This is where this John's ministry is taking place. And a couple of things to notice about this too here. It might be helpful to see this. Um, the Jordan River is about 220 to 230 miles long. And it begins way up out of this picture at a place called Mount Hermon at 9,200 feet elevation. And it kind of winds its way down. You can see it kind of coming in here, trickling into this little basin and then trickles into the Sea of Galilee. Okay, This is one of the coolest things when I was there to, to realize. The Sea of Galilee, the surface of the Sea of Galilee, uh, 700 feet below sea level. Okay. So these waters don't run to the ocean. They run to this kind of crevice of land, 700 feet below sea level. 
And then the Jordan River keeps going down to the Dead Sea, which is 1,400 feet below sea level. It's the lowest spot on Earth. And so the Jordan River is kind of descends down there. It's 230-something. Uh, actually, hold on. Let me give you the right numbers here. The distance of the river is about 230 miles. In, um, from point to point, it's about 120 miles. So the river circles back and forth like this. 200, it travels 230 miles in a distance of 120 miles. Okay? And it's not a very big river. It swells up really big in the spring with the spring rains. Um, but other than that, it's not, not a very wide river. It's about as wide as uh, maybe this half of this room in many places. Sometimes it's even, even narrower. And as it where it's pouring into the Dead Sea, what ends up happening is it's really hot there. A lot of the water evaporates um, and it leaves all the residuals, the chemicals and the salts, which is why it's called the Dead Sea. It's a, the, a salinity of over 30%. Nothing grows there. And nothing escapes the dead, dead Sea. This is, where, where's it going to go? It's the lowest spot, on, lowest spot on earth. And so it's interesting, the word, the, the word Jordan, um, the Hebrew word for Jordan, Yardane, it comes from the, uh, the verb Yarad means to go down. And so it, it kind of makes sense, right? You know, 9,000 feet to the lowest spot on earth. This is, this is the river go down. It's the go down river because nothing goes down further than this river. It's exactly what it does down to a point of 1400 feet below sea level. So a couple of things that are very interesting uh, about this. When I was, when we were traveling in Israel, here is a, a kind of a picture. It's kind of hard to see, but here's a picture of the Dead Sea, 1400 feet below sea level. And you could see all the troughs whenever it would get rain, all of the water would run from the mountainous region around it uh, into the Dead Sea. And so uh, you can kind of see a little bit of that. So like these mountain peaks are still like below sea level. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Um, and then as we're, uh, as I'm looking from this picture, I'm, I'm taking a picture to the north kind of, and you could see way in the distance there, kind of where the Jordan River comes into it. That's the area where John's ministry was, and that's where Jesus is being baptized. And that's where all the people are coming from, the region of Jerusalem that's over here on kind of the left-hand side of the screen, and uh, they're making their way out to him. And my first trip to Israel, we were sitting kind of in this spot, and our tour guide kind of shared with us this verse from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 64. And I thought it was a very fascinating verse. Kind of getting to the end of Isaiah. And then here you have Isaiah making this kind of appeal, this plea to the Lord. It's like a prayer to the Lord. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is a prayer to the Lord. Oh, that you, Lord, would rend the heavens and Come down. The verb, yarad. That the mountains might quake at your presence 
as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. We read that verse and I realized that this is Jesus' baptism is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's exactly what happened. Notice what Mark, back to Mark chapter 10, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. I just think that's so cool. You have Jesus, whose name is Yahweh is salvation, comes down to the river called goes down and he goes down to the lowest spot of the earth and he goes under that. He goes under that water. From the heavens to the lowest spot on earth and then goes down even lower. So cool. Of course, he goes uh, much lower than that, as we'll see in his ministry, right? He goes all the way to the cross to suffer. To suffer for us and our sins. He goes to die. He goes to be buried, as he would tell his disciples, to be buried in the heart of the earth. How far? Jesus goes to save you. How far Jesus goes to save us. He goes down. He rends the heaven. He comes down to the river called. It goes down and he goes down further. And this is fulfilling all righteousness. Have you considered and thought about how far Jesus goes to save you? I love this image of what's happening when Jesus is coming up out of the water. Modeling submission to the father in his will. He doesn't go to be baptized to be repent because he doesn't. But he still is submitting to the Lord's will. A submission that goes all the way through the end of the gospel when he suffers and dies. And says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. God could have chosen to save us from afar. He could have just spoken a word from heaven if he had so chosen that plan of redemption. He could have just spoken a word. Instead, he decides to send his son fully God and fully man to come to the earth and to come to the lowest spot on earth to descend that far 
to demonstrate his love for you. That's how far Jesus goes to save you. Would you trust him? Would you rely in that love? I pray that you do. I pray that we all do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Words could never express, really, the profound nature of what you have done to save a people, to save us. God, we thank you for this story in Mark's gospel. The assurance that everything about Jesus' life is spoken of in the Old Testament. You've given words after word of promises of his coming. We thank you that we're introduced to the even the person who comes before, um, before Jesus. And we thank you that Jesus submitted himself to your will for us. God, I pray that we would trust and submit ourselves to him as Savior and ruler in our lives. We ask by your spirit, God, that you would help us to do that. In Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's, let's stand for closing benediction, shall we? And brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Father, and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.